Amen. Great singing. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. So we continue our study in the book of Psalms. And we'll be reading the entire chapter. Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come. Behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. A few weeks ago, as we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we learned about the historic defender of the gospel, Martin Luther. And it's easy to look back at historical heroes like these and forget about the complexity and the challenges that they've faced in their lives. 1527 to 1528 in particular was a difficult year for Luther. Maybe the most difficult of his life. We already know that by this point he had been ten years engaged in this long battle against the Roman Catholic Church. It caused him to be banned, hunted, captured, kidnapped, censured, and ultimately excommunicated. We also know that in those ten years he had been doing a lot of work. He was a busy man. He'd been working to overturn the dominant thought in his country of a works-based righteousness. Now imagine that one man trying to overcome a thought process of an entire country. At that same time, he had struggled to learn Greek and Hebrew and because he was trying to translate the Scriptures into his native tongue of German. At that time, anybody only knew Latin and the people couldn't read the Bible in that language. Peppered throughout these ten years were debates with some of the most brilliant minds of the day as he tried to defend the gospel, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, salvation by grace through faith alone. And 1920, or excuse me, 1527 comes along and it's a rough year. By this point, midway of the year, he had already had a couple of fainting spells that had incapacitated him from ministry, one of which happened in his own pulpit. After one of the second one put him on his back, the doctors made him Arrest, and they thought he was on his deathbed as his body was racked with major intestinal problems, heart trouble, and a dark time of spiritual depression. Here's an excerpt from a letter to his friend in August of that year. For more than a week, I've been thrown back and forth in death and hell. My whole body feels beaten, my limbs are still trembling. I almost lost Christ completely, driven about on the waves and storms of despair and blasphemy against God. It's pretty low. But that year, 1527, things got even worse. Black Plague, by that time, had entered Germany, killing thousands. And Luther and his wife, pregnant with their one-year-old son, 
decided to open up their home as a hospital for those who were suffering. Later that year, maybe even because of that black plague, their daughter Elizabeth was born and died at only eight months of age. I think we can safely say it was a rough year. Emotional problems, financial strain of supporting all these people who were sick, relational strains with uh, companions and compatriots in the ministry, spiritual struggles, emotional struggles, and yet, he battles on. He somehow made it through. What do you do when your worst year comes? What's your strategy when it all seems to hit the fan? Everything happening at one time. Do you even have anything in place? What have you done? Or what do you do? Or, maybe for some of you, what do you tell other people who are going through something similar? We all face these challenges. Maybe not in the same order. Maybe not to the same degree. But sometimes we're down emotionally. We struggle. Some of you battle depression regularly. Some of you have never had a bad day in your life. Physical problems, they increase with age. Some of us born with those. And yet we cope, we struggle on. Intense seasons of life, unique threats to our finances or to the well-being of our home. What's the strategy? Not when it's just a bad day, but I'm talking like when it's cataclysmic, when it's catastrophic, when it all seems to hit at once. That's the purpose of our text. In light of our general ignorance on how to respond to calamity, the psalmist seeks to equip believers to face the most devastating of situations, the worst of years. He gives them a plan for what to do when threatened on multiple fronts. For the original readers of this song, the potential of catastrophe, I mean true catastrophe, loomed on the horizon constantly. Earthquakes, fire, flood, famine, all of those things regularly happen without any form of federal aid. Bloodthirsty superpowers were constantly on the rampage, organizing their next military attack. And I don't know what it is about world history, but there's something about that geography where Israel rests currently that people always wanted to fight over. They were the target of attack. Fatal accidents, unexpected deaths were just as familiar to the ancient Israelites as they are to us today, if not more so. And we can only imagine the emotional challenges that they would face in such a brutal world. And it's in that context that the psalmist in the text this morning helps prepare the congregation, whoever would be singing this song, for confidence in catastrophe as he leads them to depend upon and even celebrate the ever-present protection of God. Specifically, the song highlights three benefits of this ever-present protection. We'll note confidence in calamity, stability amid anarchy, and victory over hostility. Let's look at the first one in the first three verses. Because God is our ever-present protector, we can have confidence in calamity. Look at the first verse. It's like the theme of the whole song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, you'll notice the argument here because he's going to start off with this confident reality, and then he's going to filter it through a bunch of conditions that seem totally out of step with confidence in God. He's confidently stating that God, Elohim, the Creator God, is a refuge. It doesn't take much to understand what a refuge is. It's literally a shelter that you go under when you're trying to get away from a storm. This is mainly used in the Old Testament figuratively to talk about putting confidence in someone or something. Uh, often, the word refuge was uh, translated as the shadow of someone or something. So, for example... Uh, when they talk about uh, when Israel is criticized for going under the shadow of Egypt, what they mean by that was they tried to partner up close to Egypt to receive help and aid. It's like your children in that long walk through the parking lot in the summer who get close to you to be in your own shadow, 
so that you can take the brunt of the heat and they get the benefit of the shade? In a similar way, that's what a refuge is. It says God is that for us. He is a refuge and He is also a strength. Not much different. Synonymous for sure. But the Hebrew word is strength. It implies that which is strong. In this case, it is a strong place. This even translates well into our own English when we think of the term fort or fortification or fortress. All of that going back to the French word fortis, to be strong or forte, to be vigorous. We understand that here God is not only a shelter for us, but He is a strong place for us. He is that for I mean, this is a confident note. And then I love what he adds, a very present help in trouble. So he's not just a strong place. He's not just a refuge, but he's very present. He is accessible in, and this is a great word, trouble. Trouble needs no explanation. I do like the literal rendering of it in Hebrew. It literally means a tight place. A tight place. You think of the American phrase, don't you? Between a rock and a hard place. Trouble, again, needs no explanation. We know what it's like to be in tight places, to not know where to go, what to do next. And yet, it is in the middle of those tight places that he says that God is a very present help for for him or her, a very present assistance in time of need. He is actually so confident that this is true that he continues by saying in verse 2, We will not fear, though... And then he starts filling in the blanks, and these blanks are huge. Notice the the conditions under which he will express confidence. Look at verses 2 and 3. We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, it's one thing to just not be afraid. But it's something else entirely to not be afraid in these specific contexts. I mean, it's very poetic the way that it's phrased. You've got a picture of the earth quaking. I mean, any time that there's instability, right? We long for the safety of the ground. And yet, what do you do when the ground itself shakes? It's not just earth quaking, but mountains toppling specifically into the heart of the sea. I mean, this is untold destruction. How bad does the earthquake have to be to take a mountain with its wide base and stability and for that to fall into the depths of the ocean? This is an insane, horrifying picture of utter catastrophe. A natural calamity of untold proportions. And then on top of that, you've got oceans churning. If you've ever had the experience of being stuck out on the ocean in the middle of a storm, you can identify. The rest of you just have to imagine. Think of the movie, The Perfect Storm. That's exactly what's being pictured here. These huge waves crashing against one another. The foam churning. And then, maybe the most scary of them all, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. In fact, the storm being portrayed is so powerful that the waves, listen, the waves are even pounding the mountaintops. Now, it's one thing for the waves to pound the beach. It's another thing for the waves to pound the houses by the beach. But it's something entirely different for the waves to be so strong, so high, that they even reach the mountains. Obviously, it's poetic. But yet he's saying there's no fear in these circumstances? I think that I would be a little scared if I saw just half of this stuff. Just a fourth of this. If even one of these things was true, I would be scared for my life. And yet, the psalmist here says that, you know what, I can stand and I can have confidence even in this. We can have confidence even in this. If you're a careful student of Scripture, you would actually recognize that the imagery that's being used here is actually portraying the undoing of creation. You may remember in Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that God separated the land from the sea. Like that was, the, it was this organization that took place and we knew that these things weren't supposed to cross over one another. And yet here, it's like the two have been mashed up together. It doesn't get any worse than this. The scene is one of uncreation, resulting in uninhabitable chaos and catastrophe. And yet the psalmist says, we have a refuge and strength that can be easily found in time of need. <laughs> That's confidence. 
That's confidence and calamity. Why? Because God, Creator God, is the one that is responsible for protecting the psalmist. The Creator God is the one that is responsible for protecting you and me in the most unimaginable of circumstances. This is well illustrated by the story of a, a pastor acquaintance of mine. Older man, grew up in uh, Great Britain and writes some books today. And anyway, he was alive when Germany uh, was bombing uh, Great Britain. And the particular town in which he lived was filled with steelworks and shipyards, making it a prime target for the German raids. And during the first few raids, he, he tells the story about his father like taking all the kids, I think there was four of them, and they would huddle up under the kitchen table. I mean, they were totally unprepared. I mean, how many of you have ever experienced a bomb raid before? <laughs> and yet, that, that was what they did. And after a few close calls, the, the dad realized, nobody's very confident here. We need something a little better. So, uh, the Saturday project for the next few weeks was actually digging a bomb shelter in their backyard. And so, they dug everything out. They removed the earth. They actually lined it with corrugated iron. They placed provisions and supplies in there. They put an iron shelter on top. And then they piled the dirt back on top. So for future raids, instead of fleeing under the security of the kitchen table, they actually fled into a proper bomb shelter, giving them a little more confidence. And the parallels are pretty easy one to understand. Uh, the stronger the refuge, the stronger the confidence. The weaker the refuge, the weaker the confidence. My question for you, for us, is how is your confidence in calamity? The answer to that question will directly reveal the source of your confidence. If you have a stronger object of confidence, you will have a stronger confidence. If you have a weak object of confidence, you will have less confidence, even fear. And yet, it is up to us. It, it, we have this, object, I mean, this objective, this responsibility to, to acknowledge and realize that Creator God is in control of whatever it is that He allows into our lives, and things are safe under His control. He made it all. He's in control of it all. He should be the object of our confidence, not the kitchen table of our portfolio or our friendships or our job or our bank account or our relationships with other people. We find refuge in other things and we wonder why we're so perpetually worried. When tragedy strikes, when disaster threatens, where do you turn first? If I know anything about this text, God is commending Himself to us saying, get out from under the table. Flee to me. Depend on me. I am the one who made it all. I am the one that can protect you in it. The thing that bothers me, I think, the most about this is that not only do Christians not realize that God is their shelter, nor do they easily forget, they're scared and anxious. I think one of the things that bothers me is that non-Christians seem so confident under the kitchen table. They're, they're so happy. They think that everything's going to be totally fine and dandy because they've got money, because they're healthy, because they've got the property, because they've got you know, well-being, because they've got notoriety or popularity. And because of that, they're, they're just huddled up under that table thinking everything's going to be okay. And it reminds me of the story in Matthew chapter 7. You remember how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount? There's the wise man and the foolish man. That story you used to sing as a kid about the foolish man building his house on the sand, and then the storms of judgment came and the house flattens, and yet the wise man builds his house on the rock and the storms of judgment come and it stands. We have a lot of people who are very confident on a shifty foundation. And I would warn you, dear unbeliever that's visiting here today, if your confidence in trials, because you're not immune for them, from them, you, you face them just like we do, but when you face them, if you think it is those things that will actually protect you, you will be severely disappointed. One day your money will run out. One day your health will fail. One day your friends will die or abandon you. And I hate to sound like the pessimist, but I know something that's greater than those realities, and that is that God Himself is willing to be your aid. He is willing to be your protection if you would just repent of your sin and rely on Him and not that other stuff. 
So it's not just about us finding our confidence as believers in this refuge, but it's also helping others redirect their confidence from things that won't stand to God who will remain forever. Because God is our ever-present protector, we can have confidence in calamity. But there's another benefit of this, and that is we can have stability amid anarchy. Stability amid anarchy. Look at verses 4 to 7, and as you're reading it, I want you to try to see a, a contrast here. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters His voice, the earth melts. And then that closing refrain, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Do you see the contrast? The contrast is the stability of God's habitation uh, compared to the anarchy of the godless nations and kingdoms. Obviously, more attention is given to God than it is to those kingdoms, but they are pretty different. I mean, the first scene is that of the peace and prosperity of God's city. I mean, immediately the scene changes. We were in this scene of like unimaginable chaos, the undoing of creation, and now all of a sudden it's like a new scene, new picture, we're at a new background, and it's a beautiful one. <laughs> I mean, it just starts off with this picture of a flowing river with many tributaries. In this city, this walled city, the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Now, we need to pause for a second, because for us, rivers can be mere scenery. Like, they look nice. We actually live in an area in which we're surrounded by what some could call rivers. There's that thing out here beside the, uh, the church. There's another one across the way. I know that's not a river, but it's a body of water. And we're just used to those things. We see them all over the place. But think about some uh, geographical differences for a moment between us and the ancient Near Eastern reader. They don't have an abundance of water. They don't live two feet below sea level. They don't have any natural river flowing for them anywhere nearby, especially the city of Jerusalem. Hezekiah would eventually try to build an aqueduct into the city, but that is no flowing river with many tributaries. I mean, where a river was not, you were always open to the threat of famine, to the threat of drought, and when that happens, people die. And yet where a river was, you were guaranteed abundance of crops, <laughs> provision. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a stark contrast. Basically, a river represented everything that you could possibly need because that provides the crops, which provides the nutrients, which provides the strength to work. And you don't have the water, you don't have any of that. So now we've got the best of both worlds because we've got this city of God with this river and notice the little phrase, with its many streams or its many tributaries. Meaning that it's widely accessible to all. You'll see that theme repeated throughout the psalm. And he continues, God is in the midst of her. What is this great place? Where is this ideal city? It is the place where God dwells. It is the place where God is in the center. She shall not be moved. That moved is the same word that talked about the mountains toppling into the sea earlier. God's city is not going to be upset by anything. It is established. And then notice, God will help her when the morning dawns. It's a beautiful picture because, yes, that city will still experience some form of night, and yet they could count on help from God just as sure as the sun comes up the next day. This is an awesome place to live. In our area, we look for real estate. People want amenities. They want acreage. This is where I want to live. I want to live where I'm constantly provided for, where God helps me every morning, where the city or where the place will never be overturned by anything. I mean, this is a great place. But now notice this contrast. Verse 6. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. It's a little different, isn't it? <laughs> Outside, you, you hear these nations raging. The same word used for roar earlier about the oceans. You've got nations roaring. You've got this battle cry, presumably of violence. They're, they're arguing with one another. The kingdoms are teetering on the brink of destruction. It's, 
Anarchy, instability, uprising. It's the idea of them being in conflict with one another. Frenzied soldiers. You can hear the roar of the charge. Only in these two little lines. It's just so different. Those two lines are so different than what was described earlier. In God's city. And notice this. How will the Most High respond to this threat of anarchy? He simply lifts his voice. And the entire earth melts like wax. All these soldiers may work themselves up. They may throw themselves in a tumult against the city of God. And all he has to merely do is speak. And it dissipates. It melts away. The dreadful systems of this world dissolve into nothingness at the mere voice of God. And then notice, with these benefits in mind... Of God's city, the place where he dwells. Notice the refrain in verse 7. God is with us. It says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The term Lord of hosts could literally be translated Yahweh of armies. In English, we think of hosts as someone who hosts a meal. (laughs) Uh, That's not what it's talking about. The Lord of hosts is literally the host of armies. A host was somebody who was necessary to carry out the campaign of a king. And we know, because of what we know of other places in Scripture, that the Lord of hosts could also be translated the Lord of angels, or angel armies even. It's a pretty amazing thought when you think about an angel and what he could do in battle. We have one scene in 2 Kings 19.35 where an angel, one, slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians (laughs) single-handedly. And God controls a whole army of these? That God, in charge of those armies, is with us? And he continues, the God of Jacob is our refuge? Why the God of Jacob? Why not the God of Abraham or the God of Isaac? It takes some time for me to figure that out, but the more I thought about it, you may remember that Jacob was one of the three patriarchs of Israel, and he was the least impressive of the three. When you're reading through your Old Testament, you're the most disappointed with Jacob. You just think he's a loser. His name, by the way, means deceiver. Yet, listen to this, God was faithful to this one so unworthy and constantly preserved him in times of need. That's a good reminder. It's not just the God of the celebrated winner, but it's even the God of the loser. The one who is unfaithful to him. He still will protect the failure. That God. The God who stabilizes an entire city. The the one who is in control of armies. The one who shows his grace is with us. He is for us. In the Hebrew, it repeats it twice. It wants you to know that he's not just a protector, but he is an ever-present one. He is one that is with you. He is one that is accessible. And what I love about this picture in particular is that it puts together safety and satisfaction. I'll do a test for a moment. I need your participation. Please don't speak out loud. Just use your imagination. Think of the safest place on earth amid anarchy. Let's say that there was political uprising, there was war. Where's the safest place on earth that you think you could possibly be? Now, hold it in your mind. You may have a few places. Your list may be different than mine. Um... I tend, one of the things I thought of was Fort Knox. I know it protects gold and it doesn't even do that anymore, but it's a fort. It was made to keep everybody out. <laughs> I thought that that would be a good place. Or maybe a bunker, like was described earlier. If, you know, if World War III breaks out, give me a, a bunker. <laughs> but the funny thing, though, about the safe places that we could possibly think of is they aren't very satisfying places, are they? Nobody wants to live at Fort Knox, nobody wants to live in a bunker. I'm sure there's a Pinterest page out there on how to decorate a bunker. But by and large, we realize that there's not much going on there. It's not satisfying. Now, another test. Ready? Think of the most satisfying place on earth. The place where you're the most happy. The place where you're the most fulfilled. Maybe that's in the comfort of your own home with your own kids. Maybe that's at a beach somewhere, relaxing, taking it easy. Maybe it's at Disney World, the happiest place on earth. But there's something missing. Whether it be Disney World or the beach or even your own home, if anarchy is breaking out, you will not be safe in those places. And yet here, 
The psalmist has somehow put together the themes of safety and satisfaction all in the one, in the person of God. He is not just a protection for us, but He is a pleasure for us. It's a beautiful picture. That is a benefit of trusting in our ever-present protector. Stability and satisfaction in this warring world. We can have that through Jesus. We can now know the special benefits of His presence. It's amazing that the Old Testament believer was always longing for the presence of God. He, he or she wanted Him to be accompanied. It wanted God to accompany them on their journeys. They were begging for God's presence. And yet now, we as believers, we who trust in Jesus Christ, we know that God doesn't just dwell in some temple somewhere. It's not that we just get to see Him every once in a while. But through the Holy Spirit, He lives in us. He is with us. We enjoy His presence and His glory. And the greatest shame is we don't even realize it. The peace... The protection, the pleasure, it's there through Christ already. These, these idyllic realities of this city and this river and this provision, we have everything we need in Christ. And I'm telling you, we do live in a world filled with anarchy, don't we? If you listen to me preach enough, you would think that I just absolutely hate the news. You're right, I do. I hate the news. I hate headlines. If I want to get my wife worked up and disappointed and frustrated, all I have to do is let her read the news. I have a feeling the same thing may be true of you. It never ends. It never ends. I mean, while I was across the country, I didn't have access to the news some of the best days of my life. I hear just a few things, and I'm like, oh, that's horrible. You didn't hear that this happened, and this happened, and this happened. I'm like, did anything good happen while I was gone? I mean, the nations still rage, do they not? The kingdoms still totter. And look, I'll say this now, and we're going to listen to this a year from now and think, oh, well, that was so dated. But it always changes. Listen, you've got, just a few years ago, Iran had its own nuclear threat, and everybody was up in arms about Iran. And then last spring, it was North Korea. And then now this year, it's North Korea. And then you got China, and then it was Russia, and then it was ISIS. And there's always somebody new on the scene somebody new for you to get worked up about, there's somebody new for you to be scared of and wonder if your grandkids are going to make it, if Jesus tarries is coming. Look, I get that, but the assurance for all of us is no matter what the kingdoms do, no matter how the nations may rage, God still reigns. That is to be the confidence of God's people. I don't even know any way around this outside of you actually spending more time meditating on the reign of God than the chaos of the nations. He is there. He is present. He still rules. Does He rule fully and finally? No. There will come another day soon. We'll talk about that in a moment. But in the midst of this anarchy, we're safe. We're fine. And if we ever experience any fallout, if a regime ever changes, if the next election doesn't go the way we want it to, it's okay. Because God still rules. So we're talking about God's ever-present protection. And we've looked at the benefit of confidence in calamity, stability amid anarchy. And then finally, we'll see that since God is our ever-present protector, we can enjoy victory over hostility. This is seen in verses 8 through 11, but I would have you just look at verses 8 and 9 for a moment. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Now, we have an invitation here that the psalmist calls the congregation to observe God's works against his enemies. Specifically highlighting that Yahweh, God, secures peace through absolute victory and, denomina- I mean, and domination. domination. So, it's going to point out that we have safety and stability, right? We, we already got that. We're like, okay, yes, I know I'm safe with Jesus. But here's the cool thing about it. Is it isn't just safety and stability by some kind of like negotiated peace. It isn't just that our enemies calm down a little bit. But it's that God eliminates them. It is a peace through not defense, but a peace through offense. 
He goes on the opposition to eliminate everything that would harm us, everything that threatens to undo us. The invitation here is that we're, we're, we're encouraged to, to think about Yahweh's works. Notice verse 8. Behold the works of the Lord. What works? Specifically, how He has brought desolations on the earth. Now this is stuff that you don't typically think about when you think about God. These are things that you won't hear invitations to do on Christian radio or on Christian television. The rest, we're, we typically contemplate God's works of creation and God's works of mercy and God's works of provision. But here, the works that He tells you to think about are His works of desolation. What is desolation? Well, the word desolation literally refers to an object of horror. Typically associated with judgment. It is the aftermath of judgment of God, of the judgment of God. It normally doesn't represent the horror or the desolation itself. It's the effects, the objective spectacle of such an atrocity. So it's the ruins of a building that's been destroyed by God. It is a land laid waste after battle. If I were to be more graphic, I would only invite you to think of the military images of defeated foes strewn across a battlefield. God who exercises judgment, who ultimately terminates those who would oppose Him. It's a graphic picture. He says, think about that. The after effects of God's undefeated battle record. And the text shows us three ways, particularly, that God will secure victory. So we think not only back to the way that God has never lost a battle, but we, we think ahead to what He will do. And notice what's here in verse, 10, or verse 9. It says He breaks or shatters the bow. More literal. What's the bow? The bow is obviously the bow and arrow. It's the offensive weapon used for long-range attack. God will destroy that, but notice this. He also cuts the spear in two. Again, could be literally translated, breaks it in pieces. What's a spear? It's an offensive weapon used for short-range attack. So whether it be long-range attack, whether it be short-range attack, God will destroy it. He burns the chariots with fire. I know in some of your translations it may say shield. In some of your translations it may say utility cart. The Hebrew word is flexible. But the idea is generally that of a cart. It means specifically that he destroys not only the weapons in their hands, but he also cuts off any supply to allow them to remuster their forces. He will permanently end all opposition. And it's in that context that we come to our famous verse in verse 10. With this in mind, read verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Notice, here God's giving a command. He's demanding both faithful and foe alike who have taken up their weapons to fight. He's saying, stop, cease, desist. I, I, I want to be careful because I don't, I don't want to mess up the Bible verses that you may have posted on your wall somewhere. But Psalm 46.10 is not inviting you just to chill out and to take a bubble bath. It's inviting you to cease and desist. This is the picture of a teacher separating two warring students, a parent doing the same. Probably the even better and more popular metaphor, the one that is least biblical, is a military unit coming upon a fugitive and forcing him to surrender. Be still. Stop. Cease. Desist. Stop your worrying. Stop your raging. Stop trying to fight. It's no good. Why? Because I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will win in the end. It is futile. It is useless to resist me. It's so much more strong than just meditating on peaceful attributes. God is being portrayed here as an unconquerable warrior. And we should be assured that all those things that threaten us, all those things that war against us, all those, those things that, that actually target us and that, that are aimed at our very undoing, whether it be spiritually or physically or emotionally or whatever, they will be destroyed in the end. And he says, meditate on that. 
Think about the fact that God has had the ability to do this from eternity past, and He will still do the same in the future. Revelation fills this out in more detail, you remember. Revelation 19, 11 to 21. Write it down. Maybe read it later today. But that's where he describes in great detail how he destroys every enemy of the child of God. That day is coming. And the confidence is this. We know not only that God is undefeated. That should give you some confidence. He's never lost a battle. But here's the better thing. You know how the movie ends. You know the end before you ever get there. He tells us over and over and over again His Word, I will win. I will dominate. I will eliminate your enemies. And that should give us confidence. That should strengthen our faith. That is why He is our protector. I ask you practically, do you ever think about that? Why do we need time in the Word? Why do we need to be with the church family? Why do we need to hang out with other Christians? Because there is nobody in your normal sphere of influence who is going to be reminding you about the full and final victory of God except for His Word and other believers. You get worried, you get worked up, you're worried about all the things that could threaten you, all the things that could eliminate you, all the things that could end your life. And we say that figuratively, my life is over. Who are you listening to? It's certainly not the Word of God and hopefully not the people of God. Because God's command is that you behold these things. You spend time thinking about them. His past undefeated record. His future promise for domination. And if you're here today and you have not submitted to this God, I tell you kindly, He will win in the end. Your rebellion against Him, as well-meaning as it may be, cannot persist. All He's inviting you to do, and we say this message after message after message, and hopefully you're hearing it from other people, is just, just give up. Stop trying to do things your own way. I promise His way's better. You may think your sin is so great, and you may think that yourself is so significant, and yet He is so much better. He is so much greater. Living for Him is just is so much more safe and satisfying. He is undefeated. You will not win. You will not. Submit to Him. Stop fighting against Him. Now is the chance. Now is your time. And I like how the psalm essentially ends where it began. Notice that last verse. We're reminded the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Are you seeing why we say that he's not just a protector, but he's an ever-present one? He said it at the very beginning in verse 1. I want you to understand that I am a very present help in time of trouble. He says it again in the second refrain. These same words. I am with you. I am for you. And then just in case you didn't get the idea, he's going to repeat it one more time. I am not just strong, but I am near. I am with you. I am for you. I love how the passage does this because it would be easy to portray God as just some, some distant champion, some out there protection. Like it's, it's accessible and it's out there and it's somewhere. But God is showing himself to be near. What good is protection if it's not available? In our own home in these days, we're fighting the uh, I'm afraid battle. I'm afraid becomes a convenient excuse to do anything that we don't want them to do or that we've asked them to do that they don't want to do. They, I mean the five little ones. Uh, Eden and Gabriel aren't doing this anymore. You're doing okay. But the little ones though, they know the word. I'm scared. Go upstairs and get your shoes. I'm scared. Um, one of them's whining because another one's in the downstairs bathroom. Just go to the one upstairs. I'm scared. I'm not talking like at midnight. We're talking like 12 o'clock in the afternoon. But there may be a case in which they are legitimately scared. I get it. I'm trying to be compassionate. I realize that they're two and three and four years old. But one of the things that's interesting is even though I'm in the room 
I mean, if I go with them, they're fine, obviously. Right? But even if I'm in the same house, I mean, like, I am less than 30 feet away. In their mind, if there is any legitimate fear there whatsoever, no matter how strong I may be, no matter how great I may be as a dad, it does them no good if I'm not with them. In a similar way, what good is a God who is not with you? What comfort is there in knowing that He's out there somewhere? That you may be able to get to Him if you try hard enough. How much better is it that He is with us? He is for us. He is every step of the way. He isn't some distant champion on a TV screen. He is in our living room. He is fighting battles on our behalf. That is the point of this text. He's not just the God of the patriarchs, but He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our help in time of trouble. And He's been that present refuge for believers for thousands of years. This is, by the way, how Martin Luther handled the pressures of 1527-1528. Remember that he knew trouble and threat that year. Emotional, physical, relational, spiritual. But throughout his life, his biographers record that he was a student of the Psalms. It's one of his favorite books. Actually, it was from reading the book of Psalms that he was initially converted. And so naturally, he would come back to that over and over again. And he would find hope in dark times through the pages of uh, this book. There was one that became of particular encouragement to him. One that drove him to place all of his confidence in God and thereby to survive this trial. And that, of course, is Psalm 46. Our text today. In fact, this psalm was so special to him that it would eventually lead him to pen one of the most famous hymns in all of Christian history. I'll quote the first two verses. You should recognize it. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, He amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not His equal. So, did we in our own strength confide? If so, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is He. Lord Sabbath. Lord of hosts. Is His name. From age to age the same. And He must win the battle. Where did Luther get such confidence in calamity? How did he have such stability amid anarchy? How did he have confidence in hostility? Because he knew that God was with him. Do you know that today? I'm not talking know that today. I'm talking know that today. Do you know that today? Is that real for you today? Do you know and feel that he is with you? Do you know that he is for you? For some of you, you don't. You don't know that. You want to know that. And it's so simple. He can be for you. It's as as simple as just two words with a T. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus alone. At that point, you receive all the benefits of His protection. You don't have to go through life unsure, afraid, scared of the next thing around the corner. And yet if you're here, and you've already done that, He is already with you. He is already for you. I don't have to do an altar call and say a special prayer to have God's special presence on your life. It's already there. He already lives in you. And the only thing you may be struggling with is just realizing it. It's not actualizing it. It's actually true. It's just the realization that you may be struggling with. And the two practical things that I would commend to you, and please don't take these for granted, is... Just simple time meditating on the Word. 
Like the word reminds us when we, when we think about God's truth in the mornings or in the evenings or whenever, it reminds us that he's the victor, that he is strong and that he is with us. Christians live such unconfident and cowardly lives just because they, they don't remember. It's amnesia. Fight against that. Read the word. Secondly, pray. Say, here's a simple prayer. God, help me to see you more than the problems around me. We know they exist simultaneously, don't you? You experience the trouble. You know the trouble's real. You can see that right in front of you, but it's just too easy to forget that God is around. You remember that story in 1 Kings, I guess it is, where Elijah uh, and the children of Israel are, are facing this battle, and then he prays that God would open their eyes, that they would see, and then all of a sudden they could see that God's angels and armies fighting around them. I, I wish not in some ultra-spiritual sense, but there would be this cognizance, this realization that God is with us, and just simple, God, help me to remember that you're there. Just simply asking. Maybe all that you need. See, when trouble comes, God may sometimes take you through it. Sometimes, He'll help you in it. Sometimes, He'll keep you from it. But regardless, He is always with you. I pray you'll know that yourself. I pray that you'll show that to others in need. Some of you are doing perfectly fine. You're like, I get it. Great. Good reminder, Pastor Justin. Thank you. God's with me. I'm fine. But you know people who aren't. You know people who are in the middle of it right now. If you're okay it might be the responsibility God is placing upon you to schedule a time to meet with someone else this week and remind them of these simple truths. Tell the brother or sister in Christ, God is with you. He is powerful. He is strong. You can trust Him. Maybe it's someone who doesn't know this Lord at all. And they're still going through it. It's a simple segue to say, I know you're going through a lot but I want you to know that God can be with you. He is an ever-present protector. Let's pray. Oh God, You are our refuge and strength. You are a very present help in time of trouble. No matter what comes, Lord, we can trust in You. We can have confidence in You. Or we believe that, again, afresh, anew. And we realize, Lord, that there are some here who don't yet know that. They haven't yet submitted to you. I pray, Lord, that they would be saved today, that they would know this peace that only comes through Jesus. Or work in them in that way. Or save the lost here today. Save the lost in our sphere of influence. But strengthen the saved. May they or just cling to the reality that you are with them, that you are for them, that you are strong that you will win. May our church be marked by this confidence, not for ourselves, but for your honor and glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.